economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, Nate Johnson, my fellow producer and graduate assistant. All right, so this is a kind of a part two to what we did last time on our podcast. So Dr. Jacobson wrote a nice article for Fee called A New Survey Shows Economists Are Warming Up to Central Planning. A little disturbing for free market-minded economists like us. And so there was some interesting findings there that we started on on the last podcast. And there was so much, so many things to cover. We decided to stretch this out into part two. So they bring up stuff like wealth distribution. In the last podcast, we talked about most people not being concerned about population growth anymore. So the old story again was that uh, as the population grew, we have limited resources and we're kind of doomed to be all poor was Thomas, Thomas Malthus's thesis back then. And, and uh, so various economists throughout the years have seen the industrial revolution lead to new innovations that led to more food per acre and more resources. Julian Simon placed a bet that all commodities would actually be in better shape or argued that that would be the case. And that in large part has has been true. And so it's less of a concern now. And there seems to be a shift towards distribution. So if we are plentiful and resources I guess, in a sense, aren't as scarce as we thought they were, then really maybe economists' focus should be put to the distribution of wealth and or income. So what were your thoughts there, Peter? Yeah, so we just kind of see a continuation of the trend we identified in the last podcast. And that trend was economists, I think, are more confident in their ability to decide how the economy should look across a lot of different margins, what our spending policy should be, how much we can affect the economic growth by printing more money and other things that the Federal Reserve does. And also, economists seem to be more confident in our ability to engage in redistribution of income. And so there's been a swing. uh, And I, I will say this trend is a little bit different, the one I'm about to mention, in that when economists are agreeing to this statement, in the 1990s, when they first asked this question, economists in majority did agree with the statement, and now they're just agreeing with it more. And so the statements that is in question here is that the distribution of income in the U.S. should be more equal. So that's the statement. In the 90s, 68% of economists agreed with that. And so that is a pretty large, you know, it's a significant, it's, it's a majority and not by a small margin. And so in the 90s, 68% of economists believed that the distribution of income should be more equal. Today, that percentage is 86%. And so only 14% of economists believe that the distribution of income in the United States should be determined, you know, by someone other than them, right? Saying should be more equal, that implies that you know what the distribution should be and it should be more equal than it is today. And so there's sort of an increasing faith that the distribution we have right now is wrong for some reason. Yeah, there's kind of some implied things that I don't think a lot of people think about that it that it can be made more equal, that in an ideal world, it it 
it should so that we if, if we change policy, it's possible. There's, I, I think there's a lot of ambiguity in that question because it, one way to read that is to say something like uh, the government ought to redistribute income such that it's more equal. But, I mean, you could also say something like, I think it ought to be more equal. And I think if the government got out of uh, you know, X business, it would be more equal. Yeah. Uh, I, now, I don't think that that's what a lot of people who agree with the claim think, but it just strikes me that the way it's phrased yes. doesn't say it's too loose. Like yeah. how yeah. we ought to go about. I, I almost want to agree with it in some cases because I could say I think people should be more charitable and be thinking of others that are in need, and so there should be some sort of private redistribution. The world would be a better place if we were all a little more caring. And right? so, I mean, so, so I agree with both of you. One way we can tease this out is what I tried to do in the article, which is look at other questions on related topics. And we, when we look at other questions, we can see sort of what's going on, maybe at least part of what's going on behind the numbers. And what I think at least part of what's going on is a bad thing, because I actually do agree. It would be, I think probably that our wealth distribution in the United States is screwed up. And I think it's screwed up because we have like a lot of, you know, Russ likes to say government kissy face, uh, you know, the 1% and the financial class yeah. and all that stuff. I, I think that there's something there. Yeah. But let's look at, you know, another question, other statements. Statement number 29 here in the survey was this welfare reforms which place time limits on public assistance have increased the general well-being of society and so what this statement is saying is it's a good idea to have time limits on how long you can be on welfare that's basically what it's saying and that was bill clinton's move back in the 90s i believe that placed a five-year federal limit on welfare. It was a welfare reform act that was really had bipartisan support. Obviously the Clintons put it forward. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of what was driving that question. And we can all understand why, right? If there is a timeline to the welfare, well, first off, you could actually make like a decent, pretty understandable argument that we should have a safety net. I'm not saying that I agree with it, but it, you can make an easy argument. It's well, sometimes unfortunate things happen to people and we don't want them to starve for a few months while they look for a job. It's totally reasonable. Mm -hmm. What this is saying is that we should have some, any time limit in place that limits a person's ability to do this. So when you lose your job, you don't get to stay on welfare for your entire life after that. Because it, you know, the idea is it defeats the purpose. It actually could, could cause some problems, like people not looking for jobs. And so in the year, I guess 2000 was the first year they asked this question, 76% of, of economists agreed that there should be time limits on welfare, that these would be, would have an increase or cause an increase in the general well-being of society to have a time limit. In fact, in 2010, this number was still really high, 75%. Now, in 2020, that number has dropped to 54%. Wow. And so about a 20-point swing. In 10 years. In, in 10 years. Barely the majority of economists say that there should be a, a time limit on welfare reforms. Now, given that this is a very recent change, you have to wonder if COVID maybe influenced this a little bit, but I think it's somewhat unlikely because we were still very early in the pandemic when this was taken. And so maybe that had some impact, but I think what we're seeing here when you combine it with the other statement is economists are more favorable towards just ideas of welfare programs that are, are kind of an unlimited timeline. Mm -hmm. Perpetual help. One thing that I think is interesting in the way these questions have been framed is that they, they tend to alternate between income and wealth. And I think these are actually two very different things. That's true. Yeah. And so it's possible to equalize income distribution while actually reducing the total amount of wealth and even reducing wealth per capita. 
in every individual case while still equalizing um, income distribution. And I know that, you know, one thing that I've heard an economist, not either of you, uh, but somebody else complained about was that, you know, when they do business ethics, the only book that the only philosophy book that most economists have read is Rawls, A Theory of Justice. And which is a shame because Nozick's Anarchy State and Utopia, when he replies to it, one of the first things he says is, look, it's a mistake to think that wealth is something that is static, that is just there to be distributed, and that we can argue about the ways we distribute it. Mm -hmm. Um, Those decisions actually change the amount of wealth that there is, period. So it's not like there is this pie and we are arguing about how to cut it up. Um, when we make these kinds of structural decisions, that changes how much pie there is, period. Well, and wealth, we kind of have a stock and flow issue there with how much it impacts. So some of the politicians in the last go round were bringing up a wealth tax, which we don't have technically right now. It's always income. But as Justin was pointing out, that wealth is at work. It's not just sitting there. It's in the value of, of stocks and bonds and companies and, and buildings and assets and various things that are at work that are putting up, combined with other resources in the production of things. And so it's one thing to tax our income to try to redistribute. And by the way, I'm, I'm a, I might be in the minority here, but I'm in favor of a progressive income tax. Right now, I think our current income tax structure with the last corporate tax cut is in a pretty good place for me personally in terms of the way I think it can functionally work. I, I think the Reagan cuts of the 80s somewhat persisted over time. They floated up and then the, the, the recent tax structure shift with with Trump puts it in kind of a sweet spot, I think. I think the corporate tax still should be lower. I thought it should go down to about 15%. But nonetheless, I think it's all more on the spending side in terms of what I would try to rein in and that there wouldn't, I'm not one of those conservative slash market guys that wants taxes dropped dramatically. I, I think the current redistribution scheme for me, I think is something we could work with and that we should work more on on the spending side of the house. So I think using income to redistribute doesn't always impact the super rich. So if you have a $10 million net worth, which isn't necessarily super rich, but 10 million, and you're earning income of a couple hundred thousand or 500,000 a year, you know, having that tax rate change from 30% to 39% isn't a very big deal, frankly. And so I, I think it, I think it's something we could work with. Well, let's talk about taxes. That's a good segue. <laughs> Justin, did you have something to say? Boo! <laughs> so, taxes. Um, we mentioned taxes last podcast when we talked about fiscal policy, though we didn't go much into the survey changes because I wanted to focus mostly on spending. There were a ton of questions on spending and the role of fiscal policy, so I wanted to get into that. But something weird about these tax questions that economists were asked is that it seems like economists now have less faith in our own uh, theoretical framework, we could say. Economists think of supply and demand. It's sort of the center of economics. And anybody who doesn't buy into supply and demand, as far as I'm concerned, is not an economist. They might be a statistician. <laughs> they might be a social theorist, but they're not an economist. I, I think we're characterized by supply and demand, uh, you know, among, amongst other things. But there are two major questions that were asked about reducing taxes. And so the first has to do somewhat similar to what Russ was talking about, which is, here's a statement that economists were, put, were given. 
both in the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and today, which was reducing the tax rate on income from capital gains would encourage investments and promote economic growth. And so what that statement is saying is, if you lower the tax rate on, on your return on investments, then people will invest more. And that increase in investment will lead or be somewhat related to an increase in economic growth. That's what the statement was. In 1990, when this was asked, a majority of economists, 56% agreed. It was 56 to 44. Now, a majority of economists disagree. 40, 54% now disagree with that statement. And so we're seeing an increasing number of economists say, no, I don't either. I don't believe that reducing taxes on capital gains will increase investment, or I don't believe that that increase in investment will actually improve the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where I, you know, I, I just I'm not a big on the supply side at this point in history. I would have been totally on Laffer's side in the Reagan era. Seventy percent marginal tax rates were ridiculous. They needed to come dramatically down. So I, I think that is a situational thing. Of where where we're at, and I think where we're at doable. I'm not sure there would be a large supply side effect uh, either on the tax side. I think that the way that question is phrased is: Would a decrease in taxes increase investment? And I think the answer to that is yes. Yes, I, I do. Too. I believe on the margin that it would increase it. And then would that this have much? An, would it have <laughs> Would it have an impact on economic growth? And I think the answer is again yes. It might be small. I'm willing to concede that. We don't know the size of a No, you're right. I, and I totally agree. Any econ- any decent economist would have to say there is an effect. I would just say the elasticity, the you know, the impact of that effect when it's already low is I my opinion would be small, but they would still be positive. Uh, yeah. So Peter, you mentioned that it seems like these nominal economists are not being economists when they answer the question in the way that you say that they answer it. So right. could you spell out a little bit about the intellectual framework that you think makes it the case that this is the wrong answer. Yeah, so it, it kind of depends on, uh, there's maybe a little more wiggle room than my initial statement allowed, partially because of the other question statement that we'll get to. But part of the reason is that when we have any time there is a change in the costs of doing something, for example, a lower cost of doing something, people are going to do that thing more on the margin. This is like simple uh, supply and demand is that when you lower the price of something, for whatever reason, if the price goes down, then people are going to do a larger quantity of that thing. People are going to demand a larger quantity, for example. So this is one way to think about the supply and demand. A a simple way of thinking thinking of things is like there are people who are on the border of doing something. And if you made it a little bit cheaper for them, they do it. This is true in investment too. When people are making decisions to buy more stocks and to take on risk, part of what they consider is, if I benefit from this stock, I'm going to lose some due to taxes. And maybe the amounts that you get from your investment after that last dollar invested after tax is not worth the risk of the investment because you could make a loss on investment too. And so if we lower that tax rate, let's say we lowered it to zero, there's a lot of people who suddenly the risk of investing is suddenly worth it because the reward is higher. And so this is simple, basic economics as the cost of something goes down, people will do it more. I think anybody who would deny this is totally denying the foundation of economics, that people are rational and they prefer more to less. Yes, that people are prudential, yes. like looking out for their own best interests and they're rational, at least most of the time. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. Yeah. 
And so now someone could quibble and say, well, I don't think that, and let me make a really good counter argument. More investment might not lead to economic growth because maybe it'll give money to these fat cats who have corrupted our political industry. Now, this maybe is a really good response. And so maybe there's a little bit of room there for someone. Yeah, if we give more money to Zuckerberg or something, maybe maybe we're going down the wrong path. So so I can can hold hands with that person and tell a point. But now we have uh, one other question here that I want to get to before the break, which was question 38, statement 38. And so this statement is lower marginal income tax. And so, you know, tax on your income, this is not investment anymore. Larger, lower, excuse me, lower marginal income tax will increase the time spent at work and reduce the time at leisure. Economists, 60% agreed with that statement in 1990, actually 68% in 2000. Only 51% of economists, so barely a slight majority, agree with that now. And so that means that 49% of economists are now saying that if we lower the income tax, people would not work more. And that's because they know they're not going to work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and they might enjoy more leisure. But again, they're missing the mark at the margin of that induces a few more people to come off the couch. Yeah. And, and this, I mean, there's no economic growth aspect to this question. And so the only thing that you could be saying if you disagree with that statement is, no, I don't believe if you make something more valuable for someone that they're going to do it more. I think this is a place where people are clearly crazy. There are, by the way, uh, listeners, some, you know, instances of what's called a backward bending supply curve, where like, if you want the lottery, for example, and you got a bunch of income from it, you might work less. But to believe we're at a point in America today that people wouldn't work more if they got paid more. Uh, to me, that's crazy. I mean, why would we give overtime pay if that were the case? If, if increasing pay is going to lower people's desire to work, uh, why pay a higher wage for overtime? And, and bear in mind, with, with a million people, if, uh, if 955,000 of them say, I'm not going to do it, but 45,000 do, you're still back to economic theory. That, that's right. right. And that's our point that yes. we're trying to make is that not everybody needs to. In fact, most people might not, depending yeah. on the circumstances and how big the cut was. Real quickly, too, sometimes a criticism of the economic model and indeed of like homo economicus is that, well, actually, people aren't always prudential and aren't always rational. And this is a criticism that I think is usually unjustly levied at at, econo- at economists in that um, I actually think to make these models work, you don't need people to always and everywhere be rational or prudential. But I think that these claims will follow if you just even assume the weaker claim, which is that most people are mostly rational and mostly prudential most of the time. And if you give that up, it's very difficult to see how you even like converse with somebody uh, yeah. when you give yeah. up that, yeah, that then very it, much weaker premise. Yeah, then yes. everything's on the table. All right, we'll let the philosopher with the last word there before the break. We'll come back. We, we still have to cover some. Do we still have faith in, in com- competitive markets? It seems like uh, some economists' faith have been shaken. I know mine has not, but I know we got a long ways to go. We'll be back in just a bit. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to gortney.institute at gmail.com. The Gorton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great upcoming high school events, uh, one we're right in the middle of, of the Bitcoin 
book club. Uh, we have some discussions going on surrounding Bitcoin. What is it? What does it mean? Should I invest in it? Uh, Dr. Peter Jacobson has an inflation talk coming up uh, where we're going to learn why is inflation important, why do we care about it, and why the heck is it so high. And lastly, we have a, a half-day session on a Saturday, everyday economics. Uh, if you have a high school, junior, senior, uh, parents are welcome to attend as well. Uh, please check out our website at wharteninstitute.org. Please visit our website. There you'll find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. All right, and we're back. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the competitive marketplace and competition. And, and so uh, it got called into question here on uh, basically the faith or reliance on competitive markets to get good results. And obviously that does usually run counter to bigger government uh, tinkering and plumbing and, and doing other things to try to help fix the broken markets, which is uh, to me a, a sad place to be. And unfortunately, I think part of the reason we're there is just because we don't, we're pretty, we're starting to get further and further away from free markets. So I think there's a lack of understanding of what that would even look like without a, a decent heavy hand of government involved. But uh, Peter, what did, what did you bring up in your article on this issue? Yeah. So kind of the, the last major point is I think all of these results are unsurprising when you consider one more statement that economists have changed their mind on, which is the statement, the competitive model is generally more useful for understanding the U.S. economy than game theoretic models of imperfect competition and collusion. What this statement is saying, and uh, I guess I'll get into the change first. In the 90s, 60, 66% of economists agreed that the competitive model is a more valuable model for understanding the US economy, now only 47%. And so the, the minority of economists believe the competitive model is generally applicable to the US economy. There are some good critiques, by the way, of perfect, what's called perfect competition in the model, but that's not what is going on here. What's, what's happening is people think that, in general, markets in the U.S. are no longer competitive. They, they believe that the game is totally rigged and that you know our normal principles that markets will bring about efficiency or things like that aren't actually going to operate because we've got these totally controlled industries. And the, my, my evidence that that's what's going on here, according to economists, is that they're now more in favor of vigorously enforcing antitrust than they were before. It used to be 70-30, so economists actually generally are pretty favorable toward antitrust. I imagine that 30% in the 90s are the people like me who are concerned about what antitrust enforcement actually looks like. But now it's 93-7. And so 93% of economists believe we need to enforce antitrust vigor vigorously. Economists do not believe we have a competitive economy anymore. And while I have like some sympathies about corporatism and growing government power, I think to believe that we are in a collusive economy rather than a competitive one, I, I just don't understand how people get there mentally. It's also bad news for the argument of wanting to be effective with redistribution. So there's, there's something in economics called the first welfare theorem, and it basically says that if we have competitive markets, we can actually redistribute wealth and get back to an efficient solution through people being free to exchange their goods and make trades. Think of Halloween and you getting a bag of candy and you sit down with your friend and they have some Snickers bars and you have sweet tarts and you don't like the sweet tarts and they don't like the Snicker bar and you guys trade. And so that type of exchange allows you to get back to a, a competitive solution that's efficient. And um, it's actually bad for the first welfare theorem in the argument that we can successfully redistribute if the system is rigged and imperfect, 
there's no telling that we would, there's no confidence that we would get back to efficiency if we're starting from a place of, uh, it's all about the good old boy network and collusion and cronyism sure. and big government and big business. And I want to give our listeners, because some of you probably are maybe thinking to yourselves, well, I do think we're in a really inclusive environment. Just to help you understand what this means, think of like groceries, what a collusive model would say, or an imperfect competition model would say was would be that it's so difficult for you to buy your groceries someplace else that your grocery store has some power over your buying decisions. And I just don't think that's very realistic. Uh, I think even in Ottawa, mm-hmm. we have Price Chopper and Walmart, and I go to Walmart because the groceries are cheaper there. And I'm not too far from Lawrence. It's not very expensive for me to right. go up to Aldi there. And then and it would say that like somehow Walmart and Price Chopper could collude with each other and maybe the government to keep new grocers from coming in. Yeah. And I, I, I just, again, maybe someone could show me evidence that would make me feel otherwise, but I think our, I, I think these companies are competing on price. I think they are trying to win customers from each other rather than colluding. And I think that applies to most of the markets we're in. There are certainly markets where there's collusion and these, you know, these, the competitive models predictions would not bear out. But I think still the majority of the goods that people and most buy. of those markets are the ones that government is heavy handed. In. Yeah, yeah uh, healthcare comes to mind. Oil, finance, oil. Yeah, uh, <laughs> those right. are the ones that are messed up. Let's call it. <laughs> so I heard the results of that a little bit differently, which is I heard the question asking what the correct description of the current yes. U.S. market is. Yes. And that uh, a lot of people thought it was more collusive now. Yes. Couldn't you be of the opinion that free markets are better and still think, well, this is an accurate description? You, Yeah, you absolutely could be. Uh, so it, it, it go, go ahead, continue with what you're saying. So is the worry then that people in the economics profession think something like the market-based approach not only doesn't apply here, but really isn't the best framework for analyzing economies, period. I think my con- the, the concern that springs from this for me, I, I'm not particularly concerned about if people want to believe that we're an inclusive economy or not. What my concern is that I think this is used as, I think this change is part of the reason why you might be more comfortable. If you think we're a big collusion, then it makes sense to have more welfare. It makes sense to have more taxing and spending. It makes less sense to tax, or it makes more sense to tax uh, capital gains. I think a lot of these answers fall out by the belief by most economists that we just do not live in a world of competition anymore. Now, to be totally fair, it's actually like a, legi- a consistent person could say, well, in fact, that is what the world is like. We're less competitive today than we were before. And that does justify us to you know, regulate and do these other things. Uh, maybe I, I'm less convinced by that. And even if that were occurring, I, w- I wouldn't think that these regulations would uh, logically fall out or higher taxes or things like that. But I think that the reason a lot of economists have shifted to be more interventionist is because they believe that the market's not working anymore. That, that's what I'm trying to get at here. And my question is, though, do you think that this means that they also think that the market can't work, right? Is, is that a worry? Yeah, that's that's a tougher question. I, I do believe a lot of economists have given up faith. I, I think the giving up uh, in faith is things not. like, well, <laughs> another, another example of this is that economists are less uh, opposed to minimum wages than they were before. 
the laws of economics has not changed since the 90s in terms of the minimum wage. The consensus hasn't changed either. 99% of studies find that the minimum wage causes unemployment. But economists more than ever are willing to say, I don't think it's a big deal, the effect on the employment markets. I think that we have a lot of statisticians in economic chairs right now. I don't think a lot of professional economists care about economic theory. I think that they are tinkerers and statisticians. And so, yeah, I would say that the profession of economists, professional economists are less, have less belief in markets than they used to because they have less belief in economics. definitely more statistics driven, right? Econometrics is kind of the marquee if you're at any reputable school, quote unquote, you're heavy, heavy into the technicalities and the, and the statistics. Yeah. Um, and less about some of the foundational uh, human behavior, let's say, and theories of uh, what might drive people to do what they do. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that hundred percent, Russ. And I, I, so I guess mine is a pessimistic, Justin. Yes. I think they, there's less confidence in markets because I think a lot of the confidence in markets rests in understanding things like supply and demand. And the problem is those technical statistical stuff is, is mostly backward looking. Yeah. Um, and, and so what, uh, what Hayek and, and uh, Mises and other people were thinking about human action and using economic principles to look forward of what, what, what would it look like in the future? But it does take a leap of faith, as we were discussing earlier, that uh, trust me, liberty is going to work, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, like, oh, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, just, yeah, there's a, there's a leap of faith that's not easy. And I think it runs uh, counter to human intuition. So I think we've already breached the topic, but we can like bring it out explicitly now. I, th- I think it's a, it'd be good for each of us to give an answer. Why do we think that this is happening to the economics profession? Why is it that the economics prevent- profession believes it can interfere now in markets and be successful in doing so and bringing about the outcomes they want? Why more so than in the 1990s? What is happening? I'd like to go first because I think I want Justin to follow. And I think it's a lack of cultural, in our culture of believing in a truth. I think, and uh, Justin is, is kind of into the, the philosophical areas of truth. I think economics, the profession brings a lot of truth. Like these are the law of economics, the law of demand, the law of diminishing marginal product. And that's part of what we want to learn to, to see where we could move forward. And so I think culturally, economists are subject to the same things everybody else is that there's, it's too easy now to create your own truth and, and put less credibility in, in what learned traditionally as a truth. Well, I appreciate the compliment, but (laughs) I don't think that uh, that's not my answer. So I think that there are plenty of economists and plenty of philosophers who answer those questions in ways that we think are wrong, right? But they're not saying, well, it's just my truth. They think it actually is the objective truth that they are giving with their answer. They haven't given up the belief in objective truth. They just disagree about what that objective truth is. And they're, you know, they're willing to fight about it too. I think that in the last 40 years, what you have seen a twofold thing happening. First of all, you have seen the number of professors, period, across the board who would identify as politically conservative rapidly decrease in academia. Yeah. That matters for economists because being a professional economist, insofar as it requires a PhD, requires the imprimatur of academia, right? It is something that comes out of academia. Mm-hmm. What a shame for your field, both of you, that you, uh, <laughs> you, know, you have gone from a field where there was at least more ideological diversity in the past than there is now. 
unlike a field, say, like philosophy, where there has never been any sure. ideological. <laughs> no, you're right. Got it. Yep. But so that is one thing that has happened is that the number of conservatives, people who would identify as conservative. And look, this is a broad brush to paint with. Right. But insofar as you identify as politically liberal, you are almost by definition more open to actions to interfere with the market. Right. There was a, you know, a. Uh, Jonathan Haidt's book on political diversity in the academy, he says he talked to a group of a thousand psychologists and he said, how many of you identify as politically liberal? 80% of the hands went up in the room. How many of you identify as centrist or libertarian? Uh, Less than three dozen. How many of you identify as conservative? Three (laughs) out of a thousand. That's less than 1%. That's statistically impossible. If academia is supposed to be an accurate representation of the beliefs of Americans, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So not only has the window shifted from to there being less conservatives in academia, um, and traditionally, look, there were areas of academia like economics, like engineering, which had uh, higher rates of uh, conservatives than things like philosophy or especially um, like literature or things like that. Now, in addition to that, I think that what has also happened is that within the uh, group of people who would identify as conservative, the faith in market-based solutions has also decreased. So I think that there are more people who would identify as conservative who would also answer questions being in favor of, for instance, fiscal policy intervention in the economy. For the re- possibly for the reason that they think what Peter was saying earlier, that the system is rigged anyway. So if I sense it's so rigged and um, I would like it at least to be rigged in my favor some sure. of the time. But so they, I think, and I think it's a lack of understanding that the rigor is the government too. Yeah. They, they forget that they, when they, when somebody says the system's rigged, they're thinking that it's just corporations somehow taking advantage of this and that or that, but it's been a relationship between the government and the big corporations. Is the rigged part. So to go to the government for help is probably a little misguided. Well, just to answer the question, right? The answer, my answer to the question is that there has been this complete leftward shift in academia, and even so, fewer conservatives. And even among the conservatives, there has been a move away from markets. Uh, Yeah. And and I I agree with Justin. In fact, uh, gosh, now I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Uh, John Cochran is an economist who's very good, a very good follow uh, listeners. And he did a little survey of economists and, or he dug into the data about political affiliation economics. Economics is still the most conservative field in academia, though it's a minority. So that tells you something about academia. But as you move up the echelon of economists, so AEA members compared to non-AEA members, and then people on the board of the AEA, and finally like the highest level, it becomes more liberal as you go up the hierarchy in the economics profession, which is interesting. I'm going to appease you both here, I think, because I think there's an element of truth in what both of you say. And I I, I want to, uh, I, I think we have to talk about why the economics profession was more conservative in the first place. And I haven't done any actual research on this. This is conjecture based on my knowledge of the history of the profession. But here's what I think happened. We had in the 70s and the 80s, a pretty strong what's called Keynesian consensus, which is let's use fiscal and monetary policy to you know make ourselves grow and get us out of recessions and depressions and all this stuff. Problem in the 70s, this stopped working. Uh, stagflation famously hit. So the Federal Reserve was trying to claw us out of some economic problems caused by an oil crisis. 
and they weren't able to make the unemployment rate any better, and they caused prices to rise. And so famously, Nixon's uh, economic advisor, Arthur Burns, has this quote, the laws of economics aren't working, or the rules of economics aren't working. Uh, that's because they aren't rules of economics. They're made up Keynesian rules that don't actually work uh, in any meaningful sense. And so after that happened, I think a generation of economists who saw that coming saw the rise of Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman came in, he actually predicted that that would happen. And he gave a pretty good explanation for why everything happens that made sense. And Friedman came in and his ideas had a lot of influence. Reagan sort of wrote off of Friedman's coattails. And we had this free market revolution because interventionist policy had failed so much. So why in the 90s are economists saying definitely don't use fiscal policy and today they're more willing to? In the 90s, they saw fiscal policy fail right in front of their eyes. And so there's this old or newish quote that's like circulating. I hate to use it because it's trite by this point, but it's the hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. <laughs> I think this is sort of operated in the economics profession that we had a very tough time and that created a lot of respect in the profession towards people with good economic ideas. And those good economic ideas led to relatively good economic times in like the 90s and the early 2000s, even though there, there were still mistakes being made. I, I don't want to gloss over that. And those good times led to a bunch of really bad economists with really dumb ideas who are able to go around and say things at pretty low cost about, well, these are like Thomas Piketty. Oh, actually, we're, you know, this uh, dominated, you know, po basically post-capitalist society and we need to turn to socialism. Let's give socialism a try. They can say that now because we're in good times. Now, I think uh, my little bit of hope is that maybe we are now encountering with the supply chain stuff and inflation and all this, maybe we're encountering another hard time that's going to wake people up and remember, hey, actually, we learn this about every 20 or 30 years, but actually these policies don't work very well. We are basically, in order to enact them, we're spending our society savings, we're destroying our wealth, and that lets us have these fun policies for a while. And then we start to run out of wealth and it actually starts to destroy us. So I think that's what's behind a lot of this. I think good times gives people the ability to ignore truth to Russ's comments. And that allows people to not be as conservative economists, because I think conservative economists tend to have ideas that comport with the laws of economics rather than, you know, fairy tale economics. One other thing that I want to point out, which happened in the 90s, uh, end of the 80s beginning of the 90s is the fall of the soviet union right? and i think a lot yeah, of people right. thought wow what a great gain for freedom because now you know half the world isn't under a command economy but one of the things that i think uh, we lost when the soviet union fell was a live action example of what a command economy <laughs> looks what like not to yeah. Do. <laughs> yeah and so uh it's very it becomes much easier to sell a command economy to people who are living under a freeish economy when yeah. they don't have the example of a command economy that they can look across, uh, you know, across the Atlantic and take a look at. Yeah. And, yeah. Yep. I think that's true. I think um, uh, to kind of go back to what we empirically look at now, I think they're, they're using some economics to look at what's empirically happened, but then to point to the cause is where the differences come in that, oh, markets are the problem and the environment's different. And, and so let's use more government to fix markets versus the argument of, oh, the reason why we have these problems today is that there's been too much government and growth over time. And it's been weak leadership, maybe yeah. uh, that it was too easy. And so as a farmer would say, we've been eating our seed corn yeah, possibly right. too long, and that can lead to some problems in the future. All right. Well, this looks like a good place to wrap. Any other final words? 
All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us and please pass it along to your friends and family too. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.